Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I am delighted to be talking to such a large audience, or rather to see such a large audience to which our speakers are going to be talking. At the same time, I have always wished that the Cold War would go away to the extent where we wouldn't need it at all any longer. Uh, having been myself a specialist on nuclear strategy, I was very happy to reinvent myself and to tell people that nuclear strategy was no longer relevant and therefore I could turn to more benign subjects of history elsewhere. And from that point of view, it is in a way saddening to see that we're reunited by a subject that has got this renewed relevance. Um, at the same time, I hope that this evening's proceedings and the special issue of Cold War history that we have just published uh, to mark the 25th anniversary, more or less, of the end of the Cold War um, is uh, giving us the opportunity, I hope, to, to throw some, uh, shed some light on aspects of the Cold War that have become of interest to a larger audience, as we can see. Um, I am going to try to keep my introductions very short, but with the batting order of uh, Professor Michael Cox and then Professors Vladimir Zubok, both from this house, and then Dr. Andrew Monhan from Chatham House, we want to look at um, issues particularly of historical analogies, historical events that are seen by some, particularly in, this, in the case of uh, Professor Zubok's um, um, talk by the Russians as analogies, and the question of the, um, what we can do with history and our knowledge of uh, historical developments, and to what extent we should be careful not to draw the wrong analogies or not to have facile uh, comparisons with areas of the Cold War. So let me briefly introduce, um, if he needs an introduction at all, which I doubt, Professor Michael Cox, who is a founding director of LSE Ideas, a professor of international relations at LSE. Before that, he had an extremely distinguished career, which took him from the Queen's University, Belfast, to California, San Diego, William and Mary in Virginia. Um, Aberystwyth, where he was for a long time, uh, and with postings in other places such as the Catholic University of Milan, University of Melbourne, Canberra, um, and uh, led him to publication of a very long list of extremely important books, uh, mainly on the United States, but various aspects of the Cold War. Most recently, I'd like to mention U.S. Foreign Policy in its sixth edition, uh, U.S. Presidents in Democracy Promotion, International Relations of the Cold War, and the rise and fall of the American empire from Bush to Obama. And I will say something briefly about the other two speakers before they um, speak in turn. So Mick, if you'd like to start. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, well, after that introduction, I think it can only be downhill all the way. Uh, thank you, Beatrice, uh, for those very kind uh, words. Uh, and congratulations on editing a wonderful special issue. And of course, being the London School of Economics, I'll tell you how much it costs, but I can't remember. But we've got some copies down the, the front here. Um, firstly, it, it's, it's one of the first events I've had this year where two things have not happened. Uh, the dog that did not bark, if you like. Firstly, I don't have to talk on China, um, which is a massive relief, because it seems that every other, every other conference we now have at the LSE is something and China. Um, uh, and so it is a relief not to talk about that, although China is part of the story. Uh, and indeed, some of the consequences have a lot to do with China and its rise subsequently after 1989 and 1991. Uh, secondly, I suppose it's, it's also quite a relief to, some, to somehow not be at a conference where I'm talking about what does IR have to tell you about the origins of World War I? Uh, having said that, we are 25 years uh, after 
the end of what is, I think, rather lamely called the end of the Cold War. Some would say it ended in 1991 when the Soviet Union broke up. Some mainly think it ended in 1989 with what happened in Eastern Europe and the coming down of the Berlin Wall. There are even some, I know, who even think it ended in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So there is dispute about what ended uh, and, uh, and when uh, did it end. But I'm going to take the, the rather formalistic, uh, somewhat uh, traditional uh, line that it ended somewhere about 1989 and began about uh, somewhere about 1947. There you go. That's the end of the story. <laughs> what I think this special issue does is, I think, three, three important things. Uh, first of all, it starts with disagreement. In fact, when you look around and try to ex- explain the causes of, the reasons for, and the whys and the wherefores of what actually happened in 1989, uh, historians and indeed people in international relations more generally actually have no agreement whatsoever on it. Was it Reagan? Was it Gorbachev? Was it economic court problems of the Soviet Union? Uh, there's even, of course, a good Catholic theory of the end of the Cold War, which sort of says Poland did it with their pope. Um, you can have many, many varieties of different explanations of the, of the end of the Cold War. And indeed, there is even a view that it didn't, even, didn't necessarily even have to happen anyway. <coughs> There was a kind of view that if Gorbachev had been knocked over by the proverbial Moscow uh, omnibus, or whatever that would have been, or more likely shot, uh, then the Cold War would not have come to an end. In other words, it is more to do with the, the role of an individual and the particular policies uh, to do with one individual. So the first thing I think this uh, particular special edition and, and special issue does is simply bring, us, bring to our attention the fact that there is no agreement about why this happened, and indeed, the only thing we can agree about is that nobody really predicted it, except two or three people. And I wasn't one of them, unfortunately. Um, indeed, if it tells us anything, it's about these famous black swan events. You know this one, uh, low predictability, high impact. Well, this is a classic black swan event. Very few predicted it, and indeed it did have massive, massive impact. Uh, and that brings me to the second point, really, that I think what this special issue does, I think, again, quite importantly is to show the consequences of the end of the Cold War, leading through then to the end of the USSR a couple of years later, and then on to what we now was rather uh, earlier called a new world order by by Bush 1. The the consequences, and this is a banal thing to say, but they were huge and they were contradictory. Uh, It is difficult to understand the world we now live in today without understanding and coming to terms with what happened between 1989 and then in 1991. Uh, The rise of China, what we call globalization, the unification of Germany, uh, the reintegration of countries from Central Eastern Europe back into the European Union, the enlargement of NATO, what Russia is today, what the third world is today. The third world actually disappeared as a concept and as a construct between 1989 and 1991. There was no longer a third world revolutionary movement any longer as a result of the events uh, within, within Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. So the consequences have been huge and contradictory. Some would say they've been entirely beneficial. Others have a rather different take on it. The view you take on the end of the Cold War, it seems to me, is entirely determined where you're sitting. If you're a Pole, I'm sure you think the end of the Cold War was a damn good thing. If you're somebody living in former Yugoslavia, perhaps you may think it was a jolly bad thing. 
So there's no easy way of coming to a conclusion about whether it was a good or a bad thing. All we know is that it was a huge thing. And I think the third thing this special issue does briefly is it, it still proves that there's lots to say about the end of the Cold War. I mean, I would have thought many years ago when I was getting rather tired of this particular topic, oh God, we've said it all. How many more archives are people going to discover traveling around the world from Bulgaria to Brazil over to Chile and back again to Central America? And if you can get into the Cuban archives, you're doing jolly well. Well, I would have thought at that stage there's nothing more to say. But guess what? We still have lots more to say about the end of the Cold War and, and its ramifications and consequences. Indeed, <laughs> visiting China, as I do on a fairly irregular but you know, twice a year basis, one of the things you come across, and I discussed this when, in a recent lecture, is that people actually have a very different view about what, the, what we say about the end of the Cold War. China has a very different take on the events of 1989 to 1991 than would a Polish intellectual or a Polish worker. And indeed, Mr. Putin today has a very different take on what happened, particularly in 1991. But in short, there's lots still to say about this much discussed, much analysed and much researched uh, event. What I try to do, and here I'll kind of be very brief, you know, say what I attempted to do in my particular contribution, that even though I do IR, I do pretend occasionally to be an historian, and what I try to do is something that others in other places at other times writing about different events have tried to do, which is quite, quite interesting, I feel, and I hope you feel too when you've read it, is try to look at the events from 89 through 91, actually right through to the present day, the unfolding of the process, and the process is still going on, after all, all what's happening in Russia and Ukraine today, that's an unfolding of a process which began in the late 1980s. Basically what I try and do is look at history through the prism of history. In other words, I take the shadow of the past and try to demonstrate and, and, and make some sense as to how policymakers try to understand, make sense of, uh, come to terms with these events. And one of the things I try to say, and maybe I'm being far too fair on policymakers, who are usually historically pretty stupid and generally speaking know very little about the past, but nonetheless, all policymakers live in historical time and they have memories, they have, they have some notion of what went on before. And what I try and do in this particular piece, effectively or not, I don't know, it's up to you to judge, is try and look at the shadow of history as a new history was unfolding. That's, in essence, what I try and do. How did the past shape the way policymakers looked at what was going on around them, quite unexpectedly, from 89 right through to the present day? Uh, I use the term, and I, and I, I plagiarised madly, up of, I think a book that you edited some time ago with another author, with another editor, Beatrice, on the, 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 it's haunted by history. We're always haunted by history. And what I try and show, simply going through the events, is that at every turn and every moment in the unfolding of this process, history was there. And I try to illustrate this in six very, very simple ways. The first is really 1989 itself. In fact, the more you look at the unfolding of the events and how policymakers, particularly those in the West, looked at those events from the earliest, from January, February, right through to the coming down of the wall in, in November of 1989, 
Well, what I, what I think I, I argue and try and suggest and try and prove by some empirical verification is that policymakers approach the end of the Cold War with an extraordinarily cautious, in an extraordinarily cautious way. The idea that somehow or another there's mass celebrations in Downing Street or in Quai d'Orsay or anywhere else, it strikes me as being simply a misunderstanding of the worries and the concerns that many were then feeling about the ending of an order. Because that that is what effectively was happening in 1989. And I think one of the reasons they feared the ending of this order, while of course at at some level welcoming it, one of the reasons they did was because of history. To put it rather in a broad brush way, rather crudely, if you like, the two world wars between 1914 and 1945 showed that the international system of the late 19th and early 20th century had produced a disaster. The period after 1945, for all of the costs which were involved, and they were huge, particularly on what was so-called periphery, the third world as it became known, but nonetheless this system had produced some degree of order. It had produced some degree of peace. Even a historian like John Lewis Gaddis, as late as the mid-1980s, was talking of the Cold War not as a a war-creating conflict, but essentially as a long peace. Now, I don't entirely go along with that. 25 million deaths in the Cold War is not exactly Exactly a long piece. You know, ask what happened in Indonesia in 1965, the biggest coup d'etat in history. You know, look at revolutions in other parts of the world. The Korean War is not exactly a long piece. But nonetheless, the dominant Western policymakers, I think, nonetheless lived that historical memory. And thus, as they approached the, un- the, un- the disintegration of a system they had not anticipated would ever disintegrate, I think they were very much shaped by the past and fears that new conflicts would be unleashed. By, by, by the collapse of the old European order. This, in part, was connected to one fundamental question in Europe, the oldest question of all to some degree, that which went back to what Disraeli called the second great European revolution in a famous speech in the House of Commons in, I think, 1871. The first great revolution, he said, had been the French Revolution. The second great revolution had been the war, the war which finally led to German unification after 1871 and 1870-1871. The German question, in a sense, it seems to me, stands out as one of the fundamental historical problems which other policymakers, and indeed a very large number of Germans, found highly difficult to deal with. It's very easy, by the way, when you come to this, and I found myself kind of thinking about this, that as they kind of came to the ending of the war, they still hoped, or many hoped, that this wouldn't bring, wouldn't bring unification about. Uh, you know, Helmut Kohl had a different view about this, of course, as, as we well know, these famous ten points. But as that happened, what is really interesting is to look at the ways that different policymakers, both in Russia, certainly in Paris as well, although there's some discussion about that, but especially in this city, and especially one Mrs. Thatcher. I mean, who, I mean, you may not think that Mrs. T had a very strong sense of accurate history, but by God, she had a very strong sense of history. And to put it rather bluntly, she didn't trust the Germans, and she didn't like Germany. Uh, but she didn't like the French either, but that's another question. So... But it wasn't Mrs. Thatcher alone. There was this historically overarching problem, as they saw it and understood it, that there would be no easy way 
that the new emerging Germany coming out of the disintegration of East Germany would actually have anything other than some really deleterious and problematic results over the long term. The power and shape of history again. Even when we move on to the third point of history, one the question of the end of the USSR. Again, one would think, reading you know, today, that there were many, many in the West, particularly in Washington, who really welcomed the end of the USSR. Uh, again, not true. Simply not true. You would think that the other superpower here, the United States, would welcome the end of the other superpower in the shape of the USSR. We've beaten them. The commies are down, now they're dead. The USSR, they've lost in 89, now they've lost in 1991. Let's raise the star-spangled banner over Moscow. <coughs> Actually not true. Once again, if you look through the historical record of the time, as opposed to what people have been saying since, history again actually pointed to some real worries about what happens when empires collapse. And again, I think there is this sense that when great powers and great empires, particularly one that's problematic with all of its difficulties and contradictions, such as the Soviet Union breakup, then what follows is not necessarily a liberal peace. What may follow could be irredentism, a spread of nuclear weapons, the same kinds of problems that normally follow, or the same forms of problems, that have always followed the end of all great powers in history, whether China in 1911, or whether you even want to go back to analogies with the Roman Empire. I do think that they, 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 came, they came to the situation in 1990, 1991, with great reluctance, and I think part of that was to do with some kind of shadow of history, that when great powers fall, as they have done in the past, what follows, as I used to be taught by my history teacher in the 1950s and 60s, was deep darkness. <laughs> the Dark Ages followed the end of the Roman Empire, what would follow the end of the Soviet And indeed, on the American side, and certainly even on the British side, I think there was a genuine, a genuine concern with some historical backup for that fear of, of imperial collapse. I then look very quickly at the whole use of analogies in the 1990s. And again, it's very interesting. Again, what, what, it comes out at you time and time again. How are you going to make a ref Russia reform? How are you going to take Russia towards reform in order to avoid the worst? Actually, what then comes up in much of the debate, both on the Russian and to some degree on the American and British side, and the French side, is the Marshall Plan and the Weimar Republic. It's amazing how frequently, certainly in 1990, 1991, Russian reformers, which Vlad will talk about later on, constantly go back and say, look what you guys did, the Americans in particular, in 1947-48 with the Marshall Plan. If you, you could rebuild Europe, you could Western Europe, you could rebuild Germany, you could now rebuild Russia. This kind of utilisation of history in order to try to bring about the reforms which they thought were necessary, but which could only be made possible by a large-scale march plan. By the way, it all failed. The bankers weren't listening, the Americans weren't listening, nobody was listening, so you could use all the best analogies in history. It doesn't mean to say you're going to change anything, but again, it was interesting that they did so. And once that then happens, what you find in the 1990s is an equally interesting dimension. Russia is going down rapidly. Decline, unemployment, uh, the rise of new nationalist forces in the shape of the so-called Liberal Democrat, Zhivanovsky, the Russian Communist Party under Zhuganov were still getting 20-odd you know, percent of the vote, certainly a very large percentage of the vote. The notion of a red-brown alliance between the nationalist and the Russian Communist Party together, what did this smack of? Weimar. 
Weimar before the collapse, which would subsequently come. And again, very interesting to see how that historical parallel with, with Weimar played through in the, in, in the 1990s, indeed right up to the, to the coming of, uh, of Putin himself. Uh, to conclude, I then end really, and you can take the question of history, of course, to Putin, because Putin is a very, historical, a very historically minded figure. He uses, he manipulates, he plays with history with great effect. Don't underestimate it. You know, he plays with 19th century history. He plays with the Stalin question. He plays with the 1990s and points out that he's trying to rebuild Russia because of the terrible things that happened to Russia in the past. Only when Russia was a great power, as under Stalin or maybe under the Tsars, could Russia indeed revive itself. And in that sense, he uses history, actually, I think, rather effectively, and has a much better narrative than most people in the West. Whatever I may think personally and politically of Putin, I think he's got an historical narrative which for many people makes some sense because he, he kind of taps into a certain sense of historic victimhood and, and, and some historical facts as well. What, what I finally end up with, of course, is the final historic uh, parallel lesson of history, the use of history or the misuse of history to try and characterise the current relationship between between the West, the EU, the United States, NATO on the one side, and Russia on the other. And what do we find? Again, the, the use, in this case, I think, the misuse of history. We are now in the midst, are we not, we've been told so frequently, of a new Cold War. <laughs> in other words, back to the future. The, the future is the past. And again, this powerful narrative of the Cold War exerting itself, which only ended 25 years ago, exerting itself yet again in the discussions about the current crisis in Russia's relationship with the West and the United States problems it's having with <coughs> Moscow. And what I try and do finally here is show this is, a, this is a, a, not only a problematic use of history, I think it's dangerous. And the reason I think it's dangerous is quite simple. When one announces a Cold War, you may end up with one. <laughs> you may start with a construction, but the construction can become a reality. And remember, what began as a Cold War after the long telegram of 46 by George Kennan, the Truman Doctrine of early 1947, then the division of Europe, the creation of NATO, the freezing of the blocks in Europe, what started as an announcement of the Cold War became a 40-year standoff and a 45-year freezing of relations. And this again points to something deeply important, it seems to me. We misuse history at our peril, and we try and use history in the best way possible. And if we don't do the second, we're going to end up, I think, in the future with some very different, difficult historical outcomes. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, I'd like to go straight on to Professor Vladislav Zubok, who's a great treasure for us because he's, of course, a product of Moscow State University and did his PhD at the Institute for the USA and Canada in Moscow before coming, becoming a fellow of the National Security Archive in America, which was absolutely central to our um, historical studies of the Cold War. And he has produced a whole series of books now, not on the USA and Canada, on which he did his doctorate, but really on uh, Russia and on the Soviet Union. 
Union, particularly the Soviet Union and the Cold War, which are a great revelation and a super key to understanding them because he really kind of has exploited the Soviet archives at the, to their limits. I'd like to p- p- draw your attention specifically to the book A Failed Empire, the Soviet Union in the Cold War from Stalin to Gorbachev, 2007, and Zhivago's Children, the Last Russian Intelligentsia. His article in this volume um, put me on a track of realizing how differently Russians are interpreting the recent history, i.e. particularly the history of 25 years ago, and how the Russian narrative diverges from ours, which I think is vital to understanding of the disagreements and misunderstandings, or perhaps uh, all too good understandings in some areas that we are dealing with at the moment. So over to you. Oh, thank you very much. As you can imagine, uh, um, after my friend Cox, uh, who... Uh, mastered the art of conquering history as a narrative. It's, it's not easy for me to continue, so I, 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 I would like to take refuge uh, into specific history, more than, uh, more than uh, philosophy of history. And uh, my uh, focus in my article was on Germany and how the, end war, uh, how the Cold War ended in Germany and how the Soviet Union, uh, specifically Mikhail Gorbachev, gave his consent to uh, unification of Germany, not simply unification of Germany, but uh, that unified Germany would stay in NATO. And this is the beginning of the world that we know, the beginning of a new architecture of Europe, and some problems uh, with this architecture that the current Russian government has. Uh, Well, it is absolutely uh, clear, but let me just reiterate the obvious, why Germany and why uh, the end of uh, German uh, division was so important. Uh, Germany was a little bit involved in starting two world wars. Uh, that fact uh, was a little bit instrumental in uh, bringing that rather weak country, Soviet Russia, to the peak of its power. The Soviet Union is a superpower. So no question that if you want to locate the end of the Cold War as a historical event, somehow if you move in the direction of Berlin, you would be uh, in the right direction. I actually disagree, uh, and this is what we're all about here in this, uh, in this uh, journal, that it was a black swan, the end of the Cold War. It was, if, there were, if it were a black swan, it was much too visible a black swan, and visible for a long time because the Soviet Union structurally, and even uh, with the view of personalities, was in deep, deep trouble long before Gorbachev came to power. And you cannot, cannot understand the phenomenon of the end of the Cold War without the phenomenon of the Soviet crisis. Gorbachev came to power already with a clear view that the Soviet Union was in deep trouble and something had to be done. And he didn't know what exactly had to be done. And that, as of course the history showed, was an even bigger problem. He started to change something that existed for several decades that was more or less stable and quite intimidating for the outside world, yet he didn't know how to reform that giant country. And in in the process, um, he uh, uh, exacerbated crisis in many ways more than than he uh, repaired it. 
back to the German question, uh, I think, and I t keep telling my students, uh, go to archives. If you believe we found everything, if a few of us, a handful of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, idiosyncratic individuals called historians can master millions and millions of records of documents uh, spread all, or, all over the world, it's, of course, uh, a false proposition. And... Um, being one of those idiosyncratic individuals, I recently found, uh, uh, found uh, that Gorbachev proposed to uh, remove the wall, the Berlin Wall, um, on 28th or 29th of May 1987. In fact, uh, I found it in a diary of Sheranadze's uh, assistant, Sheranadze being, of course, uh, at that time foreign minister of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev and Sheranadze went to East Berlin, still East Berlin and West Berlin at that time, uh, talked to the leadership of uh, the Communist Party, called you know, SED um, uh, at that time in East Germany. And uh, later on, uh, Sheranazo was telling his assistant, we proposed to remove the wall. Why they did it? Because that meeting coincided with preparations for 750th anniversary of Berlin, the city of Berlin. So it was uh, known that Reagan was coming. Reagan was coming to West Berlin. So uh, Reagan may come up with an idea of unification of Germany's. So they made this proposal. What was the, the reaction? Our friends reacted very negatively. <laughs> Mm, for a good reason. And then Shivanadze ended. Oh, we should think about the long-term working program regarding this issue, regarding the wall. Quite amazing episode that requires a lot of questioning, a lot of additional material and explanation. What happened? Did they really want to remove the wall? Probably yes. Did they know that Reagan would come to West Berlin, would stand next to the wall and make his famous speech that all fans of Reagan like to quote to this day, Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall? They, they probably got it through the intelligence channels. But what to do? To remove the wall indeed uh, would have meant, as subsequently became very clear, the collapse of the GDR, the collapse of the East German state. And that reveals, if, if, if truly that was a proposal in 1987, reveals the uh, extent of lack, of lack of deep insight by Mr. Gorbachev about how economy works, how finances works, and what was the foundation of East German communism after all. It was a remarkably legerdemand, remarkably nonchalant proposal of such a magnitude. Oh, well, uh, if you think that there was any uh, long-term working program prepared after that in the, uh, in the uh, foreign ministry, in the KGB, in the Central, Central Committee, you're wrong. Nothing like that was prepared. And why? Because very quickly after that event, domestic crisis in the Soviet Union began to exacerbate and ultimately exploded in the fall in 1988-89. So much so that in the fall of 1989, where the events we know from footage, television footage, uh, happened in East Germany and then in Czechoslovakia and then uh, throughout the Eastern Bloc when you know, thousands and millions of demonstrators in East, in East Germany began to demand democracy and that, by the way they chanted Gorby, Gorby at that time something else was on Gorbachev's mind 
And in my article, I reconstructed the background of deep domestic crisis of the Soviet Union. That was the black swan that was imploding, imploding up the scene. And a few, just a few days before the collapse of the wall, the Politburo convened, not to discuss the German question, but to discuss the Baltics. And one of Gorbachev's, uh, Gorbachev's uh, comrades inside the Politburo, Prime Minister Nikolai Rushkov, said, it's not about the Baltics uh, demanding independence. It's not about Lithuania. There was Lithuania still only. Uh, if Lithuania goes independent, we're concerned more about Russia and Ukraine. And if they go independent, it will be another country and another government within a year. The end of the quote. So, to put uh, the end of the Cold War in a proper context, we must look into the depth, rapidity, surprising rapidity of the Soviet implosion. The primacy of domestic crisis of the Soviet Union was so predominant that, in fact, uh, no historian, no historian would understand the timetable of German unification and negotiations on the German unification without looking at Soviet domestic events. For instance, many historians wondered why Gorbachev just refused to make a deal after the collapse of the wall Surprising, completely surprising for Gorbachev, like for anyone else, in November 1989, there was a period of um, nine months, almost eight, nine months, when the Soviet Union basically stood on a very unrealistic position. Did not quite, uh, did not quite put up with German unification, and then refused to accept the reality of a united Germany as a sovereign country, unified sovereign country, choosing NATO. And it doesn't make any sense from the viewpoint of foreign policy, because all diplomats who knew the situation, specialists in Germany, Gorbachev foreign policy assistants, felt that you know you have to make a deal. You have to make a deal. Gorbachev did not make a deal until July 1990. It, it becomes absolutely clear why if you look at domestic history of the Soviet Union, because Gorbachev's, Gorbachev's power base became imperiled. On the right, uh, on the right from the uh, disgruntled military, from the right-wingers, on the left from that uh, uh, aspiring leader Boris Yeltsin, who would soon become the first elected, popularly elected leader of Russia. So Gorbachev had to improvise and create a new power base for himself. So from January 1990 to early July 1990, this is what exactly he did. He created the institution of strong presidency, which, by the way, it's the beginning of that strong presidency, the idea of strong presidency, that finally one man, Vladimir Putin, learned how to use. <laughs> Gorbachev couldn't. Yeltsin failed. Putin took this idea of a strong presidency and implemented it. All right, so only after that, only after Gorbachev uh, got elected as a president, uh, only after Gorbachev got re-elected simultaneously as the leader of the Communist Party, he immediately rushed to meet with Kohl to have a deal with Germany. It's absolutely clear that you know, two questions were on Gorbachev's mind. First, if, uh, if uh, I don't make this deal now, 
it would be too late and Germans maybe would not give me money I badly need. Second thing that was on Gorbachev's mind, oh my God, if I, if I make this deal and Russians would uh, take after me, if Russians would rebel because Germany may still be seen as an enemy after World War II, what would I do? So Gorbachev was between the Scylla and Charybdis, proverbially uh, not, not knowing what to do. A few words about, uh, about the nature of that uh, domestic crisis of the Soviet Union. It's an immense topic, but I would say here's a, uh, here's a perfect case for someone interested in how the world works. It's a combination, unique combination between deep structural crisis and the flaws of personal leadership. I'm not saying that Gorbachev was not, uh, not a, 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 a leader. He was a leader, but he uh, was an a leader that ran the country ad hoc. He didn't like long-term planning. He didn't understand the, important of, uh, the importance of finances, and he preferred very strongly understandings, gentlemen agreements between the leaders on a personal level. All that was adequate for ending the Cold War peacefully, but it wasn't adequate for keeping the Soviet Union intact, and even more, to make the Soviet Union a beneficiary, not a loser, of that uh, Cold War order that was uh, collapsing. A few, um, uh, a few uh, thoughts about what we find when we uh, look at the interaction between Gorbachev, for instance, and the, uh, the US, uh, President Bush. Um, this interaction ha can be uh, reconstructed with remarkable degree of precision because the Bush Library released telephone conversations, both conversations between Bush and Gorbachev and Bush and Chancellor Kohl of Germany, uh, Soviet archives. Uh, although some people believe they somehow were open and then closed, they remain open and uh, you can find interesting new materials in those archives as well. So we know a lot on this interaction. What's interesting that you, it's absolutely clear that President Bush and the White House after the collapse of the wall realized the architecture of security, the architecture, political architecture of Europe is changing and the key country is Germany. That was, make. I'm sorry, the moment when Britain lost its uh, role of a special, special uh, ally of the United States. And perhaps uh, Madame Thatcher not only personally despised Kohl on a ad hominem level, but also felt that he was doing something wrong also with her as a leader of a special country. Because Bush-Kohl relationship, you see the blossoming of a remarkable friendship right there as your friendships are in international relations. That blossoming happened virtually overnight. In January and February, they became best friends. Why? Because Germany became the key country, and Bush and the United States clearly realized in order for the United States to stay in Europe, and it was said clearly, in order for the United States to keep its military in Europe, an agreement with Germany must be reached. And Gorbachev is a nuisance. You know, Russian troops are still there. You have somehow to get rid of those Russian troops. And uh, uh, every time they talk on the phone, Cole and Bush say, you know, what we do with these Russian troops? And Bush said during one conversation, well, you have a deep pocket. 
you have a deep pocket. It was the moment when half a million of uh, Soviet troops in East Germany uh, were supposed to be paid in Western Deutschmarks after the the change from East Deutschmark to West Deutschmark. Mm -hmm. Well, otherwise their savings, the uh, savings of all Soviet officers and their their families would have been gone. So Gorbachev had his best armies located in the center of Europe without any money to pay them. The key from that money was in Bonn with coal, in Deutsche Bank to be absolutely precise. The keys from, from the factor of Soviet troops in, in East Germany were, of course, in Gorbachev's pocket. Only he could have given an order for those troops to stay where they are or move back to the Soviet Union. It was all the more logical just to exchange those keys which basically what happened. I don't want to be completely cynical about this question, but the question of finances, the question of financial power that you keep finding over and over again in the story of the end of the Cold War. I know Mr. Putin, of course, manipulates history very well, but Gorbachev manipulated rhetoric very well as well. In fact, there was Gorbimania, as they said in, in, in German, even Gorbasm in 1989. <laughs> you know, but once you get to the realities of power, once you get to the realities of not soft power, but money, money. Then it turned out that the deep pocket of Chancellor Kohl was a deciding factor. I'm, uh, I'm about to conclude with two, two points. First of all, uh, there are two points, of, uh, two points of attack on Gorbachev right now in, uh, in Russia. First uh, point that is attacked uh, because he didn't have a premonition wisdom to conclude a deal with Western partners in such a way that NATO would not march eastward, would not expand eastward. And this point is always made against Gorbachev. So Gorbachev for 25 years keeps hearing, you know, more or less than 25 years, because NATO began to expand, enlarge in 1994, 1995. So from 94 to today, Gorbachev keeps hearing these these, uh, uh, complaints. Um, His uh, answer was, how could I make any uh, deal uh, that NATO would not expand to the territory of what was then the Warsaw Pact, because the Warsaw Pact still existed? Well, it didn't have to be a missile engineer to realize in 1990 that the days of the Warsaw Pact were over. In fact, the Poles, the Hungarians, you know, the Czechs began quietly to sound out what would happen after the Russians are gone. So what's interesting here for us, dealing with current problems around the world, is the power of rhetoric. Gorbachev could not just come to, back to his comrades, back to the Politburo, back to the, uh, to the Congress of, of, of the Communist Party, and tell them the Warsaw Pact is finished, guys. Uh, the Comic-Con, you know, the, the economic system of the Soviet bloc is broke and finished. Not at all. He, it's very difficult to say whether he believed that uh, socialism in Eastern Europe, as he put it, could be saved. But he said it repeatedly. It's a question either of self-delusion or the power of rhetoric that held himself captive. <laughs> So he believed, somehow miraculously, that Warsaw Pact would go on, that the Poles would suddenly turn into best brothers and best friends of Russia. 
That still mystifies me, but that's that's what happened. And finally, the power of finances. I cannot say more. Well, usually when you uh, when when you read about the end of the Cold War, what do you get? Power of democracy. Freedom and democracy. Not to deny ideal, idealism of millions of people who were in the streets at that time demanding freedom, independence, and democracy. I think money was somewhere very, very important behind the scene in that whole story. I even, I'm prepared to go as far as to claim, as a hypothesis of course, that the Soviet Union was a creature that died because of globalization. Globalization, financial globalization, killed the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union, after the fall of the wall, was not credit worthy. Germans continued to give the Soviet Union some money, but all other banks stopped crediting Soviet economy. And as some of my Russian friends, after I lectured in, in Russia recently, you know, when the Western sanctions were proclaimed, particularly financial sanctions, said to me, oh, okay, could you tell us more specifically how many months it took for, to, to destroy the Soviet finances? That's about, about six months. About six months, remarkably quickly. So, um, ending with this story, I think. Vladimir Putin learned some lessons from that story. Strong presidency, of course, is important. But power of money is equally important. He was, after all, a colonel of the KGB, watching in East Germany how West Germans annexing East Germany with the power of money. He understands that as long as he has the reserve of dollars, the reserve of uh, Euros, he's still safe. What else he learned from that lesson, we still have to understand. Thank you. Okay, uh, very briefly, before I introduce Dr. Andrew Monaghan, I wanted to bring your, to draw to your attention um, another uh, article which is in an earlier issue of Cold War History by Christina Spohr of this college, uh, which is another very fine piece of historical research in which she went particularly into the issue of whether or not there had been promises about non-enlargement of NATO. And I think this has to be summed up. Um, I, I, I think I agree with uh, Professor Zuberg in saying that, you know, Retrospectively, it looks very much as though it was very unrealistic of Gorbachev to have said, uh, to have uh, assumed that the Warsaw Pact would continue to uh, exist. Um, but it is quite important that there were uh, some speeches made where, crucially, Hans Dietrich Genscher, the German foreign minister, in 1990, in a public speech, saying NATO is not going to move one centimeter further to the west, when, of course, speaking specifically in the context of the integration of East Germany into NATO, where there weren't going to be any troops in East Germany. And I wonder to what extent it is a sort of um, misperception of the world which is directly connected with this idea of very strong leadership that a Soviet leader and subsequently Russians would assume 
that one individual in a Western country could make a binding commitment like that, quite apart from the fact that it's taken out of context. It's taken out of the context in which the Warsaw Pact still existed and the discussion was merely about the inclusion of East Germany into all of Germany, the, the United German State, and whether or not that would then be covered by NATO. Be that as it may, I'd now like to introduce uh, Dr. Andrew Monaghan of Chatham House, who's a senior research fellow there with the Russia and Eurasia program, uh, who before working at Chatham House was at the NATO Defence College and the Research Division there and a senior associate member of St. Anthony's College, Oxford. I had the great uh, pleasure of working with him very closely in his time at King's College London, where he also did his doctorate. And I'd like to draw your attention to some of his publications, particularly one of which there are several copies of here, which is about defibrillating the vertical. Uh, just to explain, he then done further very fine uh, Mick, listen, listen, I'm, I'm explaining, I'm explaining. He'd done further studies of the working of the, um, the, the Russian state and the, the power structures within the Russian state. So an earlier publication that he had in International Affairs was an article called The Vertical Power and Authority in Russia. Um, his most recent uh, publication explains that the, not all is well with the workings of state control, which is why Putin was defibrillating, refibrillating the vertical, trying to bring it, make it work again and apply uh, policy in that way. Uh, also articles in the world today, the Kremlin is not just a one-man band and various program papers that you can get from him, presumably, if you contacted him at Chatham House on the new Russian foreign policy concept in evaluation, which I found extremely insightful on the uh, Russian foreign policy concept of 2013, etc. So now over to him, and thank you very much for coming and speaking to us today when you're not working with the defense intelligence staff and other government organizations, which no longer have enough Russian specialists inside to be working properly. Thank you, Beatrice, for that, for that generous introduction. Uh, it, it would be already slightly daunting to follow Professor Coxon's book, but it's even more daunting because what Beatrice didn't say was that Beatrice was my teacher on my MA at King's, and then she was my second supervisor for my PhD. So somewhat in awe of this, uh, and also since I'm going to be drawing on some of the ideas that she herself has, has, has published in this book that was mentioned earlier, Haunted by History. So it's a pleasure and an honour to be here. I'm going to approach the subject of whether there is a new Cold War, but from a slightly different angle. I'm going to look at it from the direction of public policy today, how Russia is seen, uh, why this is a distraction, and indeed dangerous. It's not only dangerous because of what Professor Cox said, that if you start by talking about this concept, it, it talks it into reality. It's dangerous because it provides a distraction. So I'm sure you've heard that the, the numerous official statements and the, the widespread public discussion of, of a new Cold War, and you've seen it, it quite prevalent in thinking. But this is about a deja vu, echoes of the past, and, and how we can draw lessons from the Cold War about how to deal with it now. For me, this is very revealing about the mainstream Western understanding of Russia, uh, an understanding that is constantly, um, uh, constantly suffering a sense of surprise, let's say, with regards to dealing with Russia. It is also reflective of the strong sense of Groundhog Day, because those of you who remember 2006 will remember, ah, we've got a new Cold War with the Russians. 
2007. That having been forgotten, we've got a new Cold War with the Russians when Putin spoke in Munich in 2007. That having been, broadly speaking, forgotten, we get to 2008 and the Russo-Georgia War. We've got a new Cold War with the Russians. How many do we You get the theme. It's not even Every single year we have a new, new Cold War with the Russians. This has become bound up with the question of Putin's leadership, the regime question, we don't like it, therefore anything, anytime Vladimir Vladimirovich says anything, it's more or less a new Cold War. Uh, this is tricky, actually, in terms of understanding Russia, partly because it's based on this sense of Russia's trajectory after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia's undoubted trajectory towards democracy. A linear historical trajectory moving forward and onwards to democracy, or, if not, back to the USSR and the Cold War. So it's this, this linear backwards and forwards that I want to get at today. And, of course, it fits this wider narrative, easy and seductive, of Putin as the new Stalin. I'll have more to say about that. Putin trying to rebuild the Soviet Union. Uh, I don't think that's true either. And the constant references of Vladimir Putin to the 2005 speech he made, the collapse of the USSR is the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century. I'm sure everyone in this room has heard that, being, that phrase being used again and again. It is a decade old. It was badly understood then, it's even worse understood now, and I suggest we retire the phrase. There are serious problems of thinking about Russia in this way, of, of, of linear trajectories and new Cold War, because it's not thinking. It is unreasoning about Russia. There is a very strong whiff of the 20th century, when actually we're dealing with a 21st century Russia, like it or not. It is a 21st century Russia. There is no choice about that. And it distracts us also from what is a real shooting war in Ukraine. A real and serious war in Ukraine. The thrust of my observations over the next 15 minutes or so are going to be based on two main points. The first is that the new Cold War is, in effect, uh, a, a polemical discourse. One that is automatic on the one hand and out of date on the other. The second is that the idea of the new Cold War is the abuse of history. It's not the, it's not the use of history at all. It's a false familiarity and a distraction. We are preparing, in effect, to fight the last war, which means that we're preparing to be surprised again, probably this time next year. What I'm not arguing, just so that we don't embark on two separate conversations afterwards, I'm not saying that there is no new Cold War because relations are not bad between Russia and the West. They are. There is a proxy war going on between Russia and the West. There is a, an economic war going on between Russia and the West. And there is an information war going on between Russia and the West. Most of the mechanisms have been closed down. Russia's no G8 is suspended, G7. NATO Russia Council doesn't work, and so on. I'm also not saying that history is not relevant. It is and it's potentially very helpful. History is very helpful, but understood in this circumstance as perhaps the history of Mark Bloch. History is both continuity, which is the easy bit, and understanding change, which is the difficult bit. And if we really, really insist on this, I suggest that you don't bother with the new Cold War discussion, but go and read Mark Bloch's book, uh, L'Etrange Defaite, The Strange Defeat, in which he points out that the French loss in 1940 was above all an intellectual defeat. If we're not careful, actually, that might end up happening to us. 
So we're not using history, we're pretending to, and that's particularly dangerous. My final point is that we, I'm not Russia bashing here. This is not the intention. If anything, I'm Western bashing, because we're not thinking. We're really not thinking about Russia. So, the first of my, of my two main arguments. I mentioned that the new Cold War is, is not new, because we keep repeating it, we keep, keep having it. It re-emerges regularly as if it's new, but from about 2006, it becomes a somewhat polemical argument, a one-end argument about Russia, about an essentialist Russia, um, a, a Russia that is threatening, a Russia that is threatening the West and, and its own citizens. This increased and gathered a great deal of, of, of this polemical argument gathered weight during Vladimir Putin's second term, to be sure. At the same time, because it was so polemic, it built up a refutation, a refutation that was sound and solid based on the idea that there was no fundamental clash of interests, as there was during the Cold War, and no fundamental clash of values or ideology, as there was during the Cold War. Fine. But this polemic became the focus, and we started arguing amongst ourselves rather than paying attention to Russia. Yet another binary question like the Medvedev versus Putin argument that we, we wasted so much time on. The idea that, that Medvedev might run against Putin in the presidential election, like Putin running against George Osborne in the national election. Here. Absurd. Absurd. So we get distracted by these, we're distracted by these um, false images instead of paying attention to Russia. But these arguments have been worn bare in their Churchillian and Kennan-like repetition. People can sound statesmanlike and Churchillian and say, oh, new Cold War, and point to the Iron Curtain and so on. They're certainly euphonious because they can just quote Churchill. <laughs> but they are inaccurate. As I say, the new Cold War argument is essentialist, is unchanging, is undeveloping. It does not move with, with, with what's going on in Russia. The refutation, at the same time, is increasingly inaccurate. It's inaccurate for two reasons. First, there is an increasingly obvious clash of interest to anyone who, pay, anyone who decides to pay attention. The most obvious of these is the clash of interest in terms of the divisibility of security in Europe. There is a major clash of interest over how Europe, European security should be understood, over the architecture. We see it in terms of we in the West, NATO, the EU, member states, the, the, the Helsinki Final Act and the three baskets of security. The Russians see it differently as the gap between political guarantees in the OSCE area and political and legal guarantees in the EU and NATO. This is creating for them a division in European, history, European security. This is at the heart of all, the, all of the European security problems that we have with the Russians now. If we have a conflict of interest, we also have a conflict of values. Not on the scale, perhaps, of the ideological confrontation of the Cold War, but very real nonetheless. The failure to establish a strategic partnership, well, that ground to a halt about a decade ago, maybe eight years. Let's be generous. Then there was what was called a values gap between Russia and the West, Russia and the European Union. This has now changed, however, and I would like to say the gap has closed and there's quite some friction going on. I want to point to this 
very specifically between the liberal West and the EU view and the small C conservative values that Russia is posing against it. I will quote Vladimir Putin from his speech last year at Beldite uh, 2013. Mm-hmm. The Euro-Atlantic countries are rejecting their roots, including Christian values that constitute the roots of Western civilization. People are aggressively trying to export this model, extreme liberalism, all over the world, taking a direct path to degradation and primitivism, resulting in a profound demographic and moral crisis. He continues, it is right and natural to defend Russia's interests and identity and conservative values. Now, I think, as I said, we should retire the greatest collapse quote and start looking at what he's saying now. Therefore, with these two distinctions I've made in European security on the one hand and European values on the other, for me it's more important and pertinent to speak of a clash of Europe's over the last, emergent over the last decade. We have clashing visions about European security and we have a clash of values and the trajectories of European heritage and Christian civilization. These are current questions and they are future questions. And they can only be resolved by looking at what the, 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 the statements are and by, by attempting to address the current questions. However, the new Cold War drags us back. It drags us back into the abuse of history and analogies. This is my second point. The use of analogies, well, I'm not going to focus too much on the Cold War because I want actually to say that we don't really know what we're using the analogy for. As Lawrence Friedman wrote in in 2009, this is a very roomy heading. And the Cold War is is treated increasingly as an undifferentiated chunk of 40 years of history. We don't really know what we mean by it. Now, sure, Professors Cox, Dubok and Heuser might know about it, but our politicians have no idea. And what you have, therefore, is a question of memories having faded, but scars, in some senses, lingering. So we're working off scars. At the same time, we have a blur of analogies. And I want to broaden it out a bit beyond the Cold War. Obviously, there are the 1914 analogies. We can't escape those. But then we also have that of the 1930s. Mm. And this is a very important overlap to make. Perhaps some of you have heard of of Godwin's Law, about uh, the longer the the, the chain of comments on on an internet article go on, the quicker you hear about uh, about Hitler and Nazism. (laughs) Um, I'm going to add a monogam's addendum to this and say that the the times you hear about the Russia-Western relationship are the the increasing number of times where the Nazi relationship is brought in, the Nazi analogy is made. So alongside the Cold War, we have Anschluss and Sudetenland for for the nasty Russians. And on the other hand, we have Munich and the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact for the nasty guilty us. Emphasizing this, we have Putin as represented not only as Joseph Stalin, but also Adolf Hitler. So he's a sort of... Hitlerian Stalinite blend. I'd say that was saying. Oh, I guess. I mean, there are. Yeah, there, but actually, this leads exactly to the next point that we don't know what we're talking about. The Nazi analogy has been used every year pretty much since Korea. Unfortunately, we had to wait until the Vietnam War for the antidote. But ever since, it's been Munich versus, versus Vietnam. Whether we're talking about Iraq or whether we're talking about Russia. So, what we're doing is we're emptying this out into an indistinct blur of of apparent analogies. 
I won't belabor the point here, but of course what we're doing is this is alarm bell history. This is, this is history as myth. This is, this is uh, Beatrice's excellent book, Haunted by History. History as myth, history as sacred tale. This is about the recognition of the idea, not the familiarity with the history. You are short-circuiting an argument by this technique. You're substituting hard thinking about things as they, as they are with easier thinking about some kind of self-created pattern. Analogy builds on analogy to create an artifice. So we have no idea what the Russians are doing. This abstracts and obscures. Let me give you two examples of why. First of all, during the Crimean operation, most of the people that I, most of the articles I read on this, including many senior Russianists, kept talking about, oh, this is like Sudetenland, Anschluss, Sudetenland, Anschluss. Uh, actually, it would be helpful to look at what the Russians are doing militarily, not keep talking about Sudetenland. Russian special operations forces were acting in Crimea, and anyone who paid attention to this knew about this because of the weapons they were using. So let's start talking about Russian military capability and not something that happened all these years ago. <coughs> because it seems to me that this way we're more frightened of Hitler than we are of Putin. And as Beatrice wrote 20 years ago, Hitler was, or Stalin was, was treated like Hitler. So what we're doing is we're just piling them all on top of each other. The second point is that it narrows our range of options. Diplomacy suddenly becomes appeasement. Mm -hmm. Talking to the Russians becomes appeasement. Who in the European political environment is going to do that? On the other hand, if it's not appeasement and diplomacy, it is containment and deterrence. But we don't know anything about the Russians because we're not paying attention to them because it's an artifice, so how do we deter them? You can't deter someone you don't know anything about. One more, one more twist to my, to my arguments, if I may. About five minutes still? The danger here is that we are creating... Uh, I, I agree certainly with Professor Cox's danger. I think there's a similar danger, a, a different danger that is in a, in a similar way. It creates a false familiarity. We think we know what the Cold War was. We think, well, we were victorious and it'll happen again if we do this and this. There's this wistful references during the last year when I was in NATO even. People say, oh, I long for the Cold War. You know, it was so easy. We knew who the, the Soviets were. They were rational and predictable. And now we've just got these awful terrorists. We don't know who they are. Much better to deal with the Cold War. If only we had the Cold War back. Ta-da! We have the Cold War back. Um, the problem is that even during the Soviet Union, the, the Soviets weren't very predictable. Uh, I'll point to the Czechoslovakian situation, Afghanistan, Poland, and as was rightly said, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So our prediction wasn't very good. More importantly, it suggests a return to the policies of containment and deterrence, as I mentioned, but senior American officials and also some of those within uh, other NATO members have said, we need to look at our readiness models from 20 years ago. We're getting this down and looking at them again. Wow. An off-the-peg solution ready to use to fit a problem that we've, we've conjured up. The problem is that the context is fundamentally different to the Cold War era. NATO is surrounded by an arc of crisis. Civil wars in Libya, Libya Syria, the rise of Islamic State. Everyone's number one threat, at least as far as NATO members are concerned. All the senior members have said this is the number one threat. It assumes also... Not only that this context that it doesn't, doesn't adapt this context, it also assumes that the preparations and model from 20 years ago were correct. 
That's not actually true. A, they weren't tested, and B, if you read Soviet military theoreticians from the late 80s, they thought that, well, we might have a stab here. We might, we might be able to win. Now, whether that was correct or not, it's certainly clear that Western planners had misinterpreted Soviet military planning. So we're drawing on something we remember badly and maybe got wrong to try and deal with a completely different problem. <laughs> Not terribly auspicious, I think. Uh, and it overlooks, of course, the major changes within Russia. This is an easy one. Of course it does, because Russia's changed in 25 years. Except in this image of the entire world is changing. And it's complex and it's difficult, whether you look at the Middle East or Iraq or, or North Africa, except Russia, which is just that old Soviet chunk that never changes. The Russians, however, are changing quite quickly, and they're watching us, and they're watching how we have been operating in Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya, and they're learning. When we look at the Crimean operation, what do we see? Counter and eastern Ukraine. Counterinsurgency, war amongst the people, and... Um, very unclear lines of representation and orders. What is it we don't like, having just fought 15 years of wars in Afghanistan and Iraq? Oh, counterinsurgency, wars amongst the people, and fighting people we don't know who they are and what their chain of command is. There is a correlation here. The Russians also learned from the Russo-Georgia War, and the information campaign that was, that was rolled out by the Georgians. The Russians have changed a lot. And this is why it's a particular risk for us to begin thinking about, oh, it's a new Cold War, we just have to do this and that, and we've, we've solved the problem. Russia may be lumbered with 20, many aspects of the 20th century, but it is looking ahead to the 21st. So, in, in conclusion, sure, difficult times in, in the Western-Russia relations, but, but to understand this and get this right and even address it, we have to look at now. We have to look at Russia in the 21st century and how we can deal with it. The new Cold War is unhelpful. It's an anchor for our thinking, because we always think back to the Soviet Union. And it is an analogy, but history without any history in it. It's an empty metaphor. Now, George Orwell wrote on this, one of the earlier writers on, on the Cold War, but he's also written on writing. <laughs> And he said, don't use empty metaphors. Once they've died, stop using them. Use your brain and think of something fresh. He'd be really disappointed if 60 years or 70 years later we were still talking about the new Cold War. And he'd say, why haven't you come up with something else? That's what we need to do. And on those notes, I will finish. Thank you very much, Chair. Well, thank you very much for three extremely stimulating presentations, and I'm very glad that we could come up to the very present with the very last one. Um, and uh, we have got 17 minutes for questions and answers, uh, to which I will immediately invite uh, Dr. Jonathan Ayer of Rusi, and otherwise please identify yourselves if I don't know who you are. Thank you. Uh, Jonathan Isle from Rusi, uh, hi to Mick, and uh, my question is to Mick. Um, this historic analogies, I mean, we're very good at spotting them. We're very good at laughing at them, as Andrew has done for most of his presentation. But are we terribly good at assessing whether they actually made the policy difference which we assume they are making by the sheer fact that we made the analogies? For instance, one of the analogies of the uh, end of the Cold War was that the Soviet Union would not allow countries to go independent, that you will have 
1956 Hungary or 1967 Czechoslovakia. But it didn't happen, and we didn't pay too much attention to it. The chicken Kiev speech of Bush is remembered for uh, as a sort of a sign of uh, derision, not as a perspicacity. Uh, we had uh, the uh, Marshall Plan proposals, which you mentioned, but at the end of the day, nobody paid any attention to them. Uh, some academics at the LSE got peerages for it, but that's about it. Well, I, did, I didn't get one. <laughs> uh, and, of course, uh, there was the temptation about division into new spheres of influence. You remember the sure. Yalta versus Malta uh, discussion in 1989, mm. but it didn't come to anything either. <laughs> so, yes, there were all these analogies, and they were very complex, and they did make humble us for a while. But at the end of the day, did they make the difference that they appear to make today when we reminiscence about that period? Yeah. I'd very much like to have a couple more questions before we go to the panel to answer. There's a gentleman there in the blue shirt. So given all these researchers that there's been to the you know, various Soviet archives... Could you introduce over, yourself, please? Donald, Donald Davidson. So all the research that has been which results in the, this, this journal of Cold War history. Uh, so to what extent was there a Soviet threat? Thank you very much. And there's a gentleman in the same row, um, just next to... Yes, thank you. Yes, hello. I'm uh, Michael Gavrilovich, a native of Belgrade, uh, the only capital so far in the world that has been bombed by both NATO and the Nazis and liberated <laughs> by the Red Army in October 1944. They've just had a, a celebration there. Uh, my concern here is this putting it in a West versus Russia uh, kind of conflict. Is it not the United States versus Russia with the Europeans simply being dragged in? And is this, this actually the Cold War, not really the US versus Russia with Europe being the battleground? Okay, I think we'll go for the first round of answers. Can we, can we have a, do you want to have a go now? Yes. Okay, yeah. Uh, thank you, uh, Jonathan. Thanks for that. Well, uh, one of the things I do say in the, in the, in the piece very quickly, Jonathan, is... Uh, in, in what difference did it in the end make? I, I mean, I do raise that particular question. I mean, all we know is that most of the politicians, at least, they had an historical framing. They constantly referred back to s certain kinds of policies and periods before. Um, when they were talking about the economic reforms in 1990, constant utilization of Marshall Plan. As the situation in the 1990s deteriorated, constant references to Weimar. Um, and in 1989 itself, I think most of the policymakers were actually quite kind of concerned about the future if, if the old order collapsed. In other words, history was haunting them. And I think that explains some of their, some of their degrees of conservatism as they came to terms with this, this rapid change. Uh, and I think that affected most Western policymakers. So I think at one level, it, 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 you could say it had no impact, but I do think it actually added to a certain level of conservatism, concerns and worries. And maybe that was a good thing because then they had to think on their feet about creating new architectures, which I think to some degree they did after, after 1989. The one person, of course, that I think, the one place I think it did make a difference, in, particularly in relationship to, to Germany, I think it did make a big difference in relationship to, to Britain. 
Um, whatever the Foreign Office may have said, and they said certainly very different things to Mrs. Thatcher, as we now know, um, because of the huge volume which came out of Foreign Office documents in 89-1990, uh, Mrs. Thatcher's interventions into history, <laughs> uh, from angst to Zusammenbruch, uh, the gathering of the historians in Oxford, I have to say it was Oxford, not the LSE, by the way, just in case, um, where we, we had a kind of gathering of historians kind of worrying their, worrying their poor little cotton socks off, really, about German national character. Now, not all of them came up with these kind of, these kind of character, caricatures of the Germans, but many of them did say, well, the Germans are self-pitying, rather boring, haven't got a sense of humour, etc., etc., etc. And whether or not Mrs. Thatcher entirely believed all this, I don't quite know. But what we do know, Jonathan, is that the, the rhetoric of Mrs. T through 89 and 1990, her attempt to use, her, to use a phrase to handbag history back, back into its place, um, her resistance to any serious engagement, at least at that time, on German unification, I think did have longer-term implications for Anglo-German relations mm. in the 1990s, whereas Mitterrand, although I'm not sure his positions were any fundamentally different to those of Thatcher, ultimately, played it rather more subtly, not surprisingly, and therefore the Franco-German relationship came out at the other end of it, it seems to me, in better shape than did, did, did the, did the uh, Anglo-German relationship. So I think in that sense, it, 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 did, it, did, it did make a difference. Very quickly on the Soviet threat. Well, I mean, how many weeks do we have? Um, my view on this, and it remains the same view I've, I wrote 20, 30, 40 years ago, is was there a Soviet challenge? Well, of course there was. Um, there was a Soviet challenge militarily, ideologically, in all sorts of other ways. Uh, my old friend Fred Halliday talked about capitalism versus socialism. A little bit too simplified, but nonetheless, there was a fundamental cha challenge between two economic systems, you know, and, and then the Soviet Union intervened into the third world. After all, Cuba would not have survived without the Soviet Union, and a number of other third world revolutions may not have happened. And the victory of the Vietnamese made a difference, by the way, and a large, a large part of that came from Soviet support. So in that sense, there was a Soviet challenge to the West, and I don't think one has any problem talking about that. The question is, and I think your question is this, and I'll, I'll end here, was there a Soviet threat as the West constructed it? And that seems to me a better, the answer I have there is I, no. It kind of comes back to, to, to Andrew's points about how we're constructing Russia today. I think there was a misconstruction uh, of the Soviet Union. I think we overestimated its power. Uh, we understated its weaknesses. We un overstated its capacity for expansion. We understated how many strengths the West had, particularly the United States, in relationship to the USSR. And in a sense, that came out, I think, in your comments. That in, in, in purely economic terms and in alliance terms as well, you know, in financial terms, whichever way you want to put it, material terms, the West was always in the lead, whether it's from 45, 46, right through to the very end, and I think that was one of the principal reasons, not the only reason, why in the end I think the Cold War came to an end. Well, very quickly on this uh, interesting discussion, I think you know, it's very sobering what we find today. Uh, the, the discourse on, um, on, on, on Russia is uh, even more primitive than it was at the end of the, uh, the Cold War. Um, yeah, perhaps it's inevitable that politicians have other more important concerns than to, to read history books, that's, that's for sure. Uh, let's not forget also another interesting thing, that it was Kohl, Chancellor Kohl, that proved to be the most uh, effective leader 
at least for his own country, um, uh, at the junction in 1989-1990, the man was considered uh, absolutely unintellectual and was actually derided by all previous German you know, uh, chancellors for that. So the man that was you know, relatively free from history, relatively free from what you call culture, you know, was able was to historian. act with remarkable freedom. That, that, that may but be terrifying. Plus, at, 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 but he was an historian. Very interestingly, he was very, very driven by his reading of history. So. Well, well, he he just you know pulled something, and all history went down the toilet at that time. You know, he just acted from scratch. You know, of course, he was a historian, not to an extent that not to, not to realize that's the unique moment. And uniqueness of moments sometimes is 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 a thing that you have to have an, uh, in, in mind. Everything is possible. There the are moments in history when everything seems to be possible, yeah. and he took advantage of it. Yeah. Can I just quickly add one quick point because it comes up to the U.S. question very quickly? One of the things that Vlad has emphasised, which I don't think gets enough emphasis, in, in largely in the American literature and the American uh, various American ways of thinking about this, this was not just an American story. Uh, I mean, this is really crucial in terms of actually understanding. There's a European dimension to this, and as Vlad, I think, correctly emphasized, there's a very powerful German dimension to this. Indeed, Mary Sorotti, who's a very great historian of this period, on 1989, what she shows that through 89, whereas Bush was deeply conservative, worrying, he kind of caught up with history, caught up with things, but only very, very reluctantly towards the very end, um, who in a sense shaped it? It was dear old Helmut. You know, cake-eating helmet. And, and also he had the money. And that's the other thing about the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan was an analogy with the, what the Americans did in Western Europe. But who, who ponied up in 1990 and 1991? It wasn't the U.S., it, it was the Germans. And I think writing Germany back into the end of the Cold War, both financially and in, in other ways as well, going even back maybe to even Ostpolitik, the strategies of the 70s and 80s, I think is a central part of the ways we should be rethinking some of the aspects of what we call the end of the Cold War, and it's not just an American story. Well, in other words, the conclusion for our students at the LSE, we should teach history that mobilizes, not paralyzes. <laughs> and before we turn to Andrew, I'm adding an, as a question for him in particular. Um, if we yeah. do understand, however, that there is a profound misunderstanding between East and West, or rather that there's a disagreement on how to read history, what's the answer? There you go. Easy question. Oh, great. Wow. Thank you. She was your supervisor. Yes, she was my supervisor. Yeah, yeah. You can all tell now. Wow. <laughs> I need a drink. Um, <laughs> not just yet. Right. Uh, Jonathan, uh, I, very briefly, I, I'm not laughing at analogies. I think they can be quite useful in some senses. But I, I do want to make the point and make it clear that very often and increasingly often, they come to the absurd. And, and that's, what we're, that's where we're deluged by absurd analogies at the moment, this, where we don't even remember our yesterdays, now, where, with this idea of Putin as, as every single Russian leader since, since Ivan Grozny, and as well Adolf Hitler. I mean, it, it becomes distracting. It chokes the discourse, and it prevents us from looking at what's going on, as I mentioned with regards to Crimea. So please don't assume I'm laughing at them. It's a very serious matter. But on occasion it becomes absurd, which becomes, yes, I, I, I think we, we need to puncture that absurdity. Um, the gentleman who asked about, bless you, um, the West versus Russia. Yes. 
I can see that where this comes from. Actually, I'm not sure it can be quite so easily divided as, as Europe on one side, uh, you know, between the US and Russia pulling. Yes, there is a tension between the US and Russia. Of course there is. But of course, many Europeans, don't forget, subscribe to the Euro-Atlantic um, value system and security system that, yes, the Americans are involved in, but, but the Europeans also help create themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, Now, I'm not saying at all that every single EU member agrees with the US, and we have a Europe divided where Italy, Slovakia, Greece, uh, amongst others, have a different relationship with the Russians to the Poles and the Brits, Mm. undoubtedly. But I I do think it is a Western problem that the Russians have uh, or see. They increasingly interchangeably use um, EU and NATO, for instance. Mm. This is a change. Mm. It used to be U.S. and NATO, of course, because NATO is the, the, the false nose of, of, of the U.S. But, but now these are becoming interchangeable. And it's specifically extreme liberalism that Putin is, is, is addressing. And that includes European Union values. Mm. Mm. So not just the, the, the democracy promoters from the U.S. and the neocons and so on that you might be expected to, 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 to anticipate, but EU values also. Um, right. There will be more questions. Profound misunderstanding and what do we do about it? Uh, well, if I knew that, I'd probably be so well paid that I wouldn't be sitting here. Okay. Uh, let's, let's be, let's be it's question. a very good question. I think what, the, the first practical thing we have to do probably is anticipate the Russian proposals next year for a rethinking of the Helsinki um, Final Act Treaty. Now, in 2008, the, um, the Russians once again proposed the idea for a new European security architecture or a treaty to discuss it, a big Europe. Um, obviously, we've forgotten about that because it happened five or six years ago, so why would we remember? Uh, unfortunately, the Russians haven't forgotten it, and they're, going to re-pro- they're already re-proposing it on second two-track diplomacy, but they're going to forward it again next year. And, and my, my, my particular answer to this is that, that we should try and anticipate them. We should have a discussion within within NATO uh, and say, right, well, this is what we think a European security architecture for the 21st century should look like. What do you reckon, Moscow? Um, We won't get a response, but it will at least um, proffer a discussion. I think we have time for just a very, very short last round. There's a lady in the third row, and please keep your questions and your answers really brief this time round. Thank you. I would just uh, like to hear your articulations, your reflection on this short comment. Uh, I appreciate what you said about the abuse that we might have with our historical concept, but I think that in the West, our mistake could be just in terms of we're trying to find some explanatory platform for our relationship between West and, and, and Russia. The problem is the way Putin abuses history because he wants to create a platform to justify his political political military actions. And I think this is a major difference between the way we might abuse history in the West and the way he abuses history in his territory because he explains one version of history to Russians, one version of history to non-educated parts in Ukraine and another version of history in the West. So thank you very much. And the lady over there? Yeah, I wonder why is Putin so concerned about the European values? Does it have to any, anything to do with uh, economic problems in, the, in Russia? 
And the last one here in the front row. Uh, hi, thank you. Uh, just a, a point of uh, language. Uh, the USSR cannot be an empire. By definition of an empire, you have to be a religious construct. A what uh, construct? A religious, a religious right? construct. Therefore, a USSR, if it was a communist state, would okay. cannot be a, an empire. But the Third Reich, of course, would be a very good example of an empire. Okay. Were they religious? Was, was the Third Reich religious? Anyway, over to you. Right. Okay. Do you okay. Want? Quick last words. Okay, very, very quick. I mean, uh, the Roman Empire before, uh, I think before Constantine wasn't Christian. Um, it had many gods, and it seemed to me they had much more fun as well, but that's another question. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think of the Roman Empire as a religious construct. It, it, it adopted Christianity uh, for, I think, entirely pragmatic reasons to hold, try and hold the empire together, which was in an advanced state of decline, as our old friend in 1776 put it. Uh, but I'm not sure an empire, by definition, has to have a religious construct. I mean, Nazi Germany, after all, you know, wasn't exactly the most you know, favourable towards Catholicism and Christianity. Um, so, you know, you might say the United States today, well, it's religious, but is it an empire? I don't know. So I'm not so sure. I have no problem calling the, the Soviet Union in some sense an empire, but I kind of use the word, the terminology in fairly promiscuous ways, but then I'm an international relations scholar, so I can be as promiscuous as I like, <laughs> unlike my dear friend Vlad here, who knows some real facts. Um, so I'm not so sure about, about that. On the values question, well, there is a values, there is a values thing. I... I do you know, I, I kind of listen to what Putin says, and I, and I hear what certain Russians say, not, not the majority, but I hear what some Russians say about why they don't like gays, uh, why they don't like that, this kind of liberal, this extreme liberalism, I think, is this, this, this defined. I don't know. I mean, to me, this is something which Putin is constructing. Um, now, whether or not, and Vlad will know much more about this, whether or not it's genuinely believed, then if it is genuinely believed and is genuinely absorbed as part of this ideological thing we call Putinism, then that makes it more worrying. That does make it worrying, because there is a values gap then, and that's an, I'll, I'll hear what you say on that. Uh, Putin abuses history. Well, twere it ever thus. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, we all... Different forms of abuse of history occur most of the time. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not letting Putin off the hook, nor am I nor am I kind of saying the West is like Russia today in many ways. Of course, I don't think that. But nonetheless, I think the abuse of history has gone on for a very very long time, several thousand years. Um, by the way, if you, if you want to kind of look at the real history of the Vatican and the, the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, that's a pretty... They don't talk about that today very much, you know, what actually happened in, in, the, in, 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 in the Vatican and, and to the papacy in the 6th and 7th century, where sex generally seemed to be pretty rampant all over the... You know, I mean, um, we, we, we construct all sorts of myths about our past. States do it all the time. Mr. Gove wants to do it for this country. I think, didn't he? Um, tell a narrative history of Britishness, which I'm not sure that my friends in Ireland, Wales, and Scotland would re readily recognise. Um, so, while I would, uh, while I would accept the point, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Don't worry. Um, I, I would just be a little careful to say that this is purely a Russian problem. That's all. And over to a real well, in really five seconds. Five seconds as a dialectic that fascinates me between values and interests and you know let's put it in a, an extremely simplistic way for some people in Europe values worked much better 
for their pocket and their interests than for other people. So Russia had an inflation of values uh, as, as, as a language, as promises by politicians, and then it plummeted during the 90s into the abyss of, of poverty. Great, great depression. So Russians became uh, justifiably a little bit cynical, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, well, now we're seeing that there's a crisis in the European Union. Some values are important. But let's see how these values can be backed by the language of interests and real interests of people, right? Mm-hmm. We see the crisis with all that stuff. Um, in, in Russia, I, I, don't, I don't think Russia is immutable. Maybe around the corner, was, I can't imagine the return to values. And these will be, you know, Different values, not, so, not only the values that Mr. Putin enunciates. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm hearing you. Indeed, there's a lot of domestic, domestic uh, dynamics going on, and it, one lesson is is valid from from my article. Watch what is going on inside Russia and what is Putin's specific interest as a, as a political leader. Final word. Thank you. Um, Eighteen points in response. <laughs> <laughs> um, Time. Uh, the, Time. The, the young lady who, who asked about, about abuse of historical... Uh, I, I, I don't think that his, abuse of history is, is just one way. It's, it's multi-form, and, and it's all happening all the time. It's not mutually exclusive. Now, it's not to say that the Russians aren't using a form of history. Of course they are. Everybody does that. Um, but I think we have to be very careful before we just blame the other. And much of my argument today is not about the Russians. I mean, the Russians only feature tangentially. It's about the way we think. So I was really focusing on our side. But it is an important point to make that there are dual histories now of the post-Cold War period, particularly. But it goes back where we've drawn different conclusions from the same body of evidence, increasingly systematically. So the last 20, 25 years' worth of history, let alone all that beforehand, Mm. looks fundamentally different in Moscow to how it looks in London or Brussels. Um, Right. Putin and European values, and are they economic? Well, I think three points I'd make very briefly in answering to this. First of all is that that, that European values, at the moment, if you listen in Moscow, it seems very much focused on homosexual rights. Uh, that the number of questions that Putin was asked in Sochi about homosexual rights vastly outweighed the, the other questions. And... His response was, was very clear. Um, yes, this is important, but it's not right at the top of Russia's priorities at the moment. We, we've got numerous other things that we need to worry about, about the cohesion of Russian society even. So one point. Two points is that the business and economic aspects, I think that certain aspects of the European value system based on contracts, for instance, is fundamentally different to the way uh, that Russia often does business, which is more based on network than contract. And third, there is a concern, I I think quite deep concern in Moscow amongst the leadership, and this is really the important point. The other two are are, are sub-points. There is a concern about Western values and the democratization process, about creating a color revolution in Moscow. That's what causes the, the, the angst about uh, what's going on in Ukraine, the idea that, that democratic values might be foisted upon Moscow somehow, alien democratic values. Um, so I think it is, in part, yes, one can be, can be a degree cynical about it and say it's all economic, but there are actually questions of, of values here as well. Well, thank you very much for my three speakers, and I'd like to ask you to excuse me for the fact that I was a bit worried about now revisiting the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in its totality in 1,000 years. But other than that, thank you so much for your very insightful and also passionate comments. But also thanks to Luke in particular and to Dan for having organized this and for this webinar.